Welcome. This is Alexia Hudson-Ward, the Editor-in-Chief of Toward Inclusive Excellence, or TAI for short, a multimedia blog hosted by Choice, a publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association. We explore equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility issues that affect the higher education community. Among the goals of this channel is the development of a pool of knowledge and actionable resources for information professionals, undergraduates, faculty of all disciplines, campus staff, and administrators at every level seeking to understand racism and discrimination from new perspectives and to promote social justice on their campuses and within their communities. We are excited to welcome you to our podcast series that borrows its name from the Higher Education Academic Calendar. Therefore, you're listening to Ty's Spring Semester. Our third Spring Semester podcast features a great interview with author Kaija Langley, NAACP Image Award-nominated author of a delightful children's book entitled When Langston Dances, which tells the story of a young Black boy who is inspired to dance after seeing the Alvin Ailey Dance Company perform. Luckily, Langston's community cheers him on. Kaija Langley was born and raised in northern New Jersey and currently resides in Cambridge, Massachusetts. When Langston Dances is her debut picture book and received two star reviews by Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and was nominated for a 53rd NAACP Image Award in the Outstanding Literary Work for Children category. Dedicated to public and academic libraries, Kaija also spends her time raising money for nonprofits. Her debut middle grade novel in verse, The Order of Things, is forthcoming from Nancy Polson Books in May of 2023. In our discussion, Kaija talks about the need for more diverse representation of children of color within children's books and describes her winding road to success as an author as a means of encouraging others interested in pursuing writing. Now, on to our conversation with Kaija Langley. Kaija, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to have this conversation with you. Thank you for the opportunity, Alexa. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I understand that you started writing poems for your family and friends at an early age, like I think seven years old. But what prompted mm-hmm. you to start writing children's books? You know, it's a, I want to say it's a bit of kismet. Uh, I started writing poems, as you said, um, at very young age, and that progressed to short stories and little novellas by the time I was in high school. And then by the time I'd gotten through college, my undergraduate, um, I think I was about 25, and I felt very intentionally so that I had had enough life experience that it was time to try my hand at a novel. Mm -hmm. And so I completed my first novel. It was an absolute train wreck, and (laughs) that was fine. Uh, Kaja, I can't believe that anything that you would create is a train wreck, but okay, I'm going to listen. Okay. 
total train wreck, total train wreck. But most first novels are because you're figuring out a lot of stuff. Yes. Um, and even when you take creative writing classes and English classes, and you understand how to construct a sentence. Constructing a story and all of those elements is a whole nother level of writing. And so it took me a little bit of time beyond that first novel to go to a few writers workshops to engage with other authors who actually published books and to get their feedback and comments and revision and you know writing is one aspect revising is a whole nother animal and you need to have both of those skills in order to be a successful writer and so i went on to get an mfa and i was living in the bay area at the time and i successfully completed a second novel and shortly after the MSA, feeling pretty good about myself, I decided to go out and try to find an agent, which is in traditional publishing, the very first gatekeeper you encounter. Mm. You need an agent in order to go out to publishers and editors in the big houses. And for the life of me, despite my big dreams of becoming a full-time author and writer of novels, the publishing industry didn't agree. So I could not find myself an agent for the life of me. Oh my goodness. It, it was, it was um, humbling to realize that, uh, you know, when you follow all the steps and you do all the things you think you're supposed to do, that the other party does not hold up their end of the bargain. <laughs> right. Um, right. So, yeah. Uh, so essentially I stopped writing. It wasn't quite intentional. I just slowly sort of gravitated away from writing and gravitated more towards other things in my life, like traveling and working and developing community and friends. And before I knew it, I looked up and a decade had passed and I was starting to feel the need to return to writing, to have that creative outlet again. And I was invited to go visit an author who was reading at the Cambridge Ringe Library, Cambridge Ringe and Latin School, mm-hmm. as part of the Cambridge Public Library City Series. And her name was Jacqueline Woodson. And the book she was reading was Brown Girl Dreaming. Yes. Yeah. And when I say it's kismet, it was ironic that I had just maybe several months before started writing a new story. And I was, I was cautiously optis- optimistic about it. And it was what I thought a story about an adult woman who was thinking about the summer she was 12 in retrospect. So that was very clearly an adult novel. However, after seeing Jacqueline read Brown Girl Dreaming and being in an auditorium with no less than 500 middle grade children all grasping their books to their chest so lovingly and all bum rushing the stage when Q&A time came for them all to stand at the mic to ask Jacqueline questions about the book, it sort of clicked for me that maybe the story wasn't an adult story after all. Maybe it was the story of a 12-year-old girl in current time, which would make it a children's book. Mm -hmm. So, So I didn't intentionally go out and seek out trying to write for children, but it became really clear to me that that might be the actual story I was trying to tell. Mm, Wow. What an amazing journey uh, to get to the place Mm -hmm. 
of deciding that you wanted to author children's books. And Jacqueline Woodson, who is a friend of the American Library Association, we hold her near and dear to our proverbial hearts. And that is just so incredible that she was really a catalyst for you to think about this shift in a really intentional way. That is really neat. Yes, yes. And of course, she was none the wiser. She had no idea until several years later when I I mentioned to her uh, sort of how this all came about. And she was like, are you are you kidding me? Are you serious? And I was like, wow, yes, I am. <laughs> wow. Well, we never know, you know, who we influence from afar, right? Until sometimes never and sometimes many years along the way. But, you know, the, the good news is that she was receptive um, to that, especially after you talked about some of your initial challenges coming into the industry. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, there, there's something to be said about writing for children. I think authors and writers who navigate the writing for younger audiences um, are coming at it, I think, from a very different place. Mm-hmm. Um, even maybe adult authors or even nonfiction authors, I think that they're coming at it from a place of really wanting to connect and grow readers. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they also tend to be a very welcoming and supportive group of writers. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is interesting. You know, and I, I, and it's funny, all the years I've been a librarian, I've never thought about, you know, how this particular group of authors think of themselves as growing readers, you know, and, and helping children enter various canons. That's really, that's really interesting. And it kind of builds into my next question around this, you know, there's so much diversity discussion in relation to mm-hmm. children's books and, and advocacy among authors like yourself, you know, and also library workers looking for representation within children's books. And in a recent interview, you highlighted the need to celebrate everyday humanity, which I think is so beautiful, beautifully phrased, the everyday humanity of Black children and their families. So would you talk about why celebrating Black humanity within children's books is so important? Sure. Um, You know, we have a very complicated history in America, we Black folks. And, you know, we have and continue to face significant amounts of injustice, um, regardless of where that lives in life, whether it's at home, it's housing practices, it's education, it's in business, it's in banking, it's across the board. And we would, the media especially, would, would have people believe that Black families and children are broken or somehow less than yeah. versus showing our full humanity. Now, granted, that's what they do. They, they sensationalize the news of the day, whatever that may be, but it never allows for the full breadth of who we are as a people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we look at other books for children, I think the latest statistics that came out, I think about 10% of the, of the books that are published with, for children, young readers is about 10%. The majority are books that have white characters and or animal characters. Mm, mm-hmm. And while there's been a great deal of progress, what 
often happens, particularly around books for black children or written by black folks for black children, you know, we focus sometimes on the history, the black history, Mm -hmm. the traumas, Mm -hmm. the injustices. And while those stories absolutely can create empathy in readers, both within the black community and outside the black community, what's also equally important is that we understand that we are a multifaceted community. We are also not a homogeneous community. We all have different experiences. But one thing we have in common is that regardless of the the traumas and the injustices that we face on a daily basis, we still laugh, we dance, we sing, we travel, we cook, we create, we uplift. We show up in the world in so many ways. Right. And those things aren't often highlighted and celebrated enough, especially in books for young readers. They need to see those examples of themselves. I I realized maybe about a year or so ago, I was in a discussion with some other children's book authors, and the topic came up that almost the majority of children's books have children living in houses. Mm -hmm. And you don't really think about that. But then a book came out where there's there's a little girl who's living in an apartment building. And that's a reality for many, 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 many children, regardless of their race. Right. But to always show children living in houses is sending a message that that's sort of the only way to live or the right way to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So diversity comes in so many forms. And, you know, showing children in, in situations and in experiences where they are, particularly children of color, they're able to just have a day. They're able to just show up. They're able to just explore. And it's not about trauma. It's not about the history of slavery. And it's not about the fact that they only have a single parent. And it's not about the fact that they may be living in the affordable housing you know they are just being children right right and other books that center whiteness and white life have that variety you can find a book for everything yes you know your first day at camp you decided you just you like cheese i mean just anything and it is okay because it is understood that there's a breath of humanity and experience in white culture. Yes. And the same thing exists in black culture. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting listening to you and reflecting on some of the work of scholars who are now situating this larger conversation around allowing black children to be children under this larger scholarly arc of black childhood studies. And it's something Mm -hmm. that I've just recently taken an interest in. I'd say recent is defined as maybe the past 10 years around the ways in which Black children have traditionally been represented in Mm -hmm. texts going back to America's earliest days um, up to our modern times. And there are a couple things that you said that just made me reflect on my own experience as a Gen Xer, um, as a child. And I'll never forget this one story 
And, you know, for our multi-generational listeners, some of you will not remember the dominance of B. Walden that then became Walden's bookstore. And uh-huh. I remember my mother fussing with my father about some books that he brought into the house for me. And they were all, you know, they were white, like you said, white children in houses. And one of the things that she really pushed back on him about, and we can, you know, we can reflect and laugh on it now, but it wasn't, it's not funny now or then, but it really speaks to the difficulties of having appropriate representation of Black children in children's books and children's literature. But she said, you brought all these googly eye kid books in here. No. You know, mm-hmm. that the books that were out during the time you and I were a child often mm-hmm. featured a distorted version of Black children with exceptionally big eyes. It was almost like, you know, the racist caricatures, exceptionally big eyes, exceptionally big heads, exceptionally big ears. And my mother was like, take it back to the bookstore. And that's just <laughs> so interesting to hear you iterate in such an amazing way around the necessity of centering humanity um, for Black Mm -hmm. people and Black children. Yes, yes. And I do remember the B. Dalton. I remember my mom taking me to that store. And, you know, at that age, I can remember reading and gravitating to, you know, a lot of the sort of Nancy Drew mysteries and Hardy Boys stuff. And I think at that point, I sort of discovered Judy Bloom and all the Judy Bloom Mm -hmm. stories. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And you know, the, the, the sort of those seminal texts that people of, of that generation would sort of remember. But where were the the same texts and stories that centered non-white characters? Right. You know, I believe they were they were they were there, but you had to you had to seek them out. You had to find them. And quite honestly, the way the publishing industry operates, it is first and foremost a business. Right, right. It has historically operated from a belief that black and brown people don't read books. Mm-hmm. So the books that they would publish during that time, and I read some of Walter Dean Meyer's books from way back in the day, mm-hmm. you know, I read those now, and it is very clear that the volume of work that he put into the world yes. were very urban focused, gritty, you know, um, yes. hard scrabble stories. Yes. That yes. I'm sure the industry people thought, yes, this is the black experience. So Absolutely. we'll publish that. Yep. We'll publish that story. You know, when Jacqueline Wooston's first came out with a, a, a book, it was about a little black girl who was living in Brooklyn and got a scholarship to go to a a white boarding school, like in Connecticut, I think. Mm, mm -hmm. And she went and she decided that that wasn't for her. So she went back home, but it was, it was a very clear shift in, in what the industry thought was appropriate for black readers. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's funny, but it's not funny. So my dad goes back to the store, Kaija, and he brings like maybe eight or nine Martin Luther King books. <laughs> my mother was like, dear Lord, like, don't we know enough about Martin Luther King? Like, like take those back too. 
And and it became right. this whole thing around there isn't a lot of positive representation of children, black children mm-hmm. in the books. And so this is why I'm so excited about your work, um, because it is it's a beautiful story and it's such a lovely story that also deals with some interesting dimensions around perseverance and joy in ways that mm-hmm. has historically not always been represented um, in children's books. And I just I just find that so delightful. I just can't stop smiling through this interview. And so what are some of the other feelings or emotions that you desire to evoke in readers with your work? You know, when you're talking about children's literature, I think almost everyone will say that there needs to be hope. There need, you know, every story, while it can't be, you know, the syrupy movie ending of, you know, everybody rides off into the sunset happily. Um, even when you're when you're writing about difficult subjects, there needs to be a sense of hope at the end because we are talking about young readers. We are giving them a mirror into, you know, even if it's fictional, life as we know it. And knowing that there is the possibility of something better, even if it's a challenging situation or a difficult situation. Yes. Um, You know, so hope, inspiration and and ultimately empowerment. You know, the thing about Langston is, you know, when I created that story, when Langston Dances is based on my godson, Langston, Mm -hmm. he was the only little boy in a class of girls in ballet. That in and of itself would have all manners of challenges. But in Langston's case, the real life Langston, he had a mother, he had a father, he had a brother, he had a teacher, he had classmates, he had a whole network of people supporting him in doing this thing that was a bit out of the norm for his gender. To this day, dancing and, and you know aside from like hip-hop dancing which everybody thinks is okay yeah of course hip-hop dancing but ballet is is such a racially stratified yes. <laughs> um, form of dance to begin with so you know he he's bending the gender stereotype he is you know showing up unequivocally himself and unapologetically himself and even when he gets a little bit of pushback from another another boy, mm-hmm. you know, he remembers that his mother took him to see an Alvin Ailey dance performance. And there are two things, there are two nuggets in that, which is about empowerment. The first is his mother had the wherewithal to expose him to something different. That's important. Secondly, because he was exposed to dance and he could see for himself that representation and that possibility when he bumped up against resistance where there are other characters or anyone else who said oh you can't do that or you shouldn't do that he could say for himself and be empowered within himself to say that's not true yeah yeah i've seen that i've seen it with my own eyes Um, and it's the same thing when we think about little children w- thinking about what they want to be when they grow up, if they want to be doctors or astronauts. What, you only know those things are possible when you see people who look like you doing those things. 
Otherwise, you just assume that's not for you. Right. Right. So both the exposure as well as the opportunity to be supported by a community of people who can say, yes, you can do that. I will stand by you in that. I will be a cheerleader and a champion for you in that, regardless of what that is. For Langston, it's ballet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's so many other things that children can grow up to be that they need those cheerleaders and those champions in their lives. And they exist. Sometimes they're not in your household. Right. Sometimes they're not in your classroom. Mm -hmm. But they are there. And sometimes you have to seek them out. Yes. But, you know, my hope is that both the adults, who are quite honestly the people who buy the books for younger readers, <laughs> and the children who are exposed to the stories, both walk away feeling empowered and having, having a conversation starter to share with others to say, look, this is a possibility. Look. You've got a little dancer, a little soccer player, a little mm -hmm. computer scientist on your hands. Here is something for you to share with them to support them in their being. Yes. Yes. And that is so that's such there are so many amazing points that you're making through this conversation. But that that's a real key point around the ways in which children's books can help to plant seeds of potential in children. So they may not necessarily always receive affirming messages or reinforcement around pursuing their interests, no matter how allegedly non-conventional um, those interests may be from the home. But there will be mm -hmm. a community of support for you to pursue, you know, whatever your heart's desire. Yes, yes. And, and, and also, you know, the messages for the adults in the children's lives, you know, specifically for Langston, I was hoping, it was my intention that they also took away that for athletically in inclined children, boys especially, that they not automatically just be, you know, shown to the sports door, you know, right. taken to the football field or given the basketball to go head out into the court. It's important that the very cover of Langston shows him in a basketball uniform because, yes, he could play basketball and he likes basketball, but he chooses dance. Right. That is an option. Everything does not have to lead down the, down the path of sports if you're talking about a boy, a boy child. Right. And so that is, that is a message that I hope the adults walk away with. And it's been it's been really heartwarming that so many parents and dance teachers have reached out to me and said, oh, my goodness, oh. this book has been, you know, so instrumental and so welcome and so, you know, loved by our, our young dancers and our young students who just love Langston's story. They love that he, despite getting some pushback, that he dances anyway. It's like they, they actually do get it. And that's, you know, that's why you write the books. Because you hope they get it. <laughs> yes, yes. I think I may have a, a burgeoning arts star in my family with my grandchild. And he has raved about this book um, because it just it really just seems to have touched him. And so I concur 
with the others who have been raving about your book and especially the nomination from the NAACP for an image award is incredible um, for this particular work. And I know that myself and Choice Publishing and the team behind Toward Inclusive Excellence, we want to extend our official congratulations to you on that nomination. That is incredible. Endeavor is so, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that that was such a surprise and such a treat, and just so again grateful and humble for for the nomination. And thank you so much for that. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad I got my book signed. I was telling uh, the choice team, I said, I don't know if I'm well, how much longer she'll have space to sign my stuff. So I'm like, make sure she signed a bunch oh. of them. <laughs> uh, I will always sign your stuff. That is a given. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's You're interesting, welcome. Kaija, at the beginning of our conversation, you um, shared your path and some of the challenges that you faced in relation to the publishing industry. And I know mm-hmm. and can imagine that there are several listeners to this podcast who are interested or thinking about, you know, I may want to pursue writing children's books, be it part time or full time. And so what advice do you have for aspiring children book authors? Yeah, you know, now now that I am a children's book author, which (laughs) is is still somewhat surprising to me, um, I I will say a few things. Uh, First and foremost, to be clear about what you're writing and why. Writing books in general but especially for children mm. requires um, it requires you to tap into that inner child that you have. Often people will come to writing for children and they think, Oh, well, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll write it for a younger reader, but you're writing it through an adult lens. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it takes some time to be able to really inhabit and to return to that place, if you're writing for middle grade, say, or YA, to tap into the, to where young readers are today. The growing up experience has not changed in the sense that we all have our developmental stages that we go through. We all typically go through a school system that operates in a certain way. Um, yes. So those experiences don't change over time. What has changed, of course, over time is technology and how it impacts what children have access to, how much of it they have access to and what they know. We as Gen Xers, you know, still lived in a time where we called our friends on the home phone and we felt yeah. really lucky if we had three-way, where we could get three of our friends on the phone at the same time. That was a luxury, um, yes. That 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 was a luxury. Uh, we turned on the television because, if I recall, there were three channels and then there was public television. Um, yep. We aren't living in that world anymore. But the emotional terrain that all children go through, wanting to wanting to belong, wanting to feel like they're seen, wanting to know that who they are and who they want to be is okay, that doesn't change. That doesn't change from generation to generation. So finding a way to sort of tap into the, that emotional terrain 
of where the those where you're writing for is is super critical and it takes it takes a lot of practice to do i will also say that keep in mind that writing books is still a business it doesn't make a difference if you're going the traditional route which requires an agent right. and shopping it around and finding an, a house that will that will buy it from you or if you do the self-publishing route ultimately it is a business and it comes down to dollars and cents and marketing and publicity and and printing and distribution so go in with your eyes wide open i will say <laughs> And and I will also say that if you're writing for very young children, and by that I mean pre-K to about fifth grade, you always need to keep in mind that you are not just selling your book to readers. You're first and foremost selling it to the adults because they're the ones who are buying the books. That is a, a hard lesson learned. That That is another level of gatekeeper that doesn't exist when you write for maybe even the YA audience. Yeah. Yeah. Teenagers buy their own books. Upper middle grade may also buy their own books, but the younger readers most certainly are reliant on their parents, their teachers, their librarians to introduce them to stories, which is why it's so critical that particularly in library land, whether that be in schools or the public libraries, diversify their bookshelves because their parents may not be doing it. Or their parents may have some opposition to bringing in, say, a book about a little boy who decides he wants to dress in drag. <laughs> you know, that's that might be problematic for some parents. So they are most certainly not going to put that on their bookshelf. But that doesn't mean that that child should not have access to that book. Absolutely. The only way they get access is through their local libraries or maybe their school libraries and so or or other people in their community who are willing to share stories that enhance their reading experiences beyond maybe the small circle of books that you get um I, I just we just ran into a young man who just had his first son and he was so excited i think the, his son was maybe 6 weeks old and he's a new dad. And he was like, oh, my goodness, we've gone out. We bought all the Dr. Seuss books. And I said, great. How about we start you off with <laughs> a different kind of book? <laughs> I said, how about we, we start yeah. here? And so I, I literally gave him a copy of Langston. I signed it to his son. And, you know, he was super excited about it. And, I, you know, because it's so easy to fall back on what we what has been traditionally so shown and sold as a children's book right you know we have we have made such great strides even though we have so many more strides to make that you can actually diversify your bookshelf now mm. there are so many more stories that we can give to children who, regardless of what community they live in, we can broaden their worlds based on books alone until they can encounter it maybe for themselves in real life. I, I love Jacqueline Woodson would, would often say when she was in other parts of the country that were predominantly white and she was traveling on tour for a book. And a parent might say, you know, that they like the book, but, you know, but it was a black book. 
and why should their child read this black book? Yeah, yes. <laughs> and, and Jacqueline's response was always funny. And I think it was something to the effect of saying, well, you're living in a predominantly white environment. I don't want your children to be meeting my children for the very first time and they be the only black people they know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 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 So, so, so that's why this is important for you, to, you and your family and children and school to read. But, you know, and, and ultimately writing is such a joy. It, it is such a, a wonderful outlet. Um, it is such a, a humbling experience to create and again, to revise and to work in community with other people because no book makes it into the world without a community of other people helping you. That's a community of other readers, editors, writers. And I would, I would absolutely say, you know, as I mentioned earlier at the top of the, the podcast, that the KidLit community has been overwhelmingly supportive and welcoming and always eager to say, hey, let me help you out. Nice. Oh, let me introduce you to this person. Let me open this door for you. And that's not to say it makes getting published any easier, but it does make it a much more palatable experience when you know that other people who have published a book says, okay, try this, try this tact or call this person Mm -hmm. or here's what I know. It, it is it is a very open community. And I think partially that's because ultimately we all just want to grow readers. Yeah. You know, there's there there's such there's this this joke that Jason Reynolds will say or, or other very popular children's book writers will say that they'll be traveling on tour and someone will say, oh, you write for children. When are you going to write real books? When are you going to write a real book? Wow. Because, of course, a real book is an adult book. Right. You know, wow. writing for children is sort of like playwriting, so to speak. And the answer is always, well, why do you think there are people to write to read your books? They start, you know, I'm, I'm basically growing your base. You should be thanking me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because that is, in essence, true. I mean, a lot of writers grow up to be writers because they were readers first. Absolutely. They fell in love with reading when they were younger. And that certainly was the case for me as an only child. I read voraciously. My mother was a reader. Mm -hmm. You know, the library was my favorite place. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, find yourself a community and, and always sort of keep, Keep why you're writing front and center because it, it can be a long and winding journey. And ultimately, when you get to that place, there is nothing sweeter than seeing your intended audience, which is not the adults, but the, the young readers, with a copy of your story in their hand. And they are excited about it and they are touched by it. Kaija, thank you so much. What a delightful conversation and what a treat to be able to hear your thoughts and to get your advice on all things related to entering new and interesting diverse works into the larger frame of children's books and novels and literature. Thank you so much for your time. This was great.
thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to, to be on the podcast and to be with Toward Inclusive Excellence. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Toward Inclusive Excellence Spring Semester Podcast with Kaija Langley, NAACP Image Award nominated author of the children's book, When Langston Dances. I encourage you to sign up for reminders of new content releases and to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your time and support. Be well.